All right, good morning, everybody. Thank you all so much for being here. We are really grateful that uh, so many of you have chosen to spend your time with us as we uh, engage in this conversation um, on social justice and the Adventist prophetic call. Um, and so if I'm honest, uh, we don't have much time together. And as you can see, I am joined by a group of distinguished uh, panelists. And so I am not going to take very long to make any kind of comments because I think we really want to get into discussion amongst ourselves, but as well as have conversation with you. And so I want to just take um, a quick moment to introduce myself. My name is Claudia Allen. Uh, I am the Community Outreach Supervisor for Howard County Government's Office of Human Rights and Equity. Um, I'm also a volunteer um, pastor preacher at the Emmanuel Brinklow Seventh-day Adventist Church in Ashton, Maryland. <laughs> Shout out to Doc Brown, one of my pastors in the back. Um, and I'm just really grateful to be here, more grateful to be moderating this panel with these individuals who I really want to introduce all of you to. Um, and so first, I want to introduce you to Pastor Alex Barrientos. Um, I'm not going to read everybody's bio, because it would take me 30 minutes to do that. Um, but Alex is the pastor of the Sligo Sunday Adventist Church in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Um, and he does amazing work in the community. And so I'm really grateful and excited to have him on the panel. We also have Dr. Myron Edmonds, who is the lead pastor of Grace Community Church. But he's also the founder of Myron Edmonds Leadership Winning Circle. And he's actually helped thousands of men um, win in the areas that matter. Um, um, really kind of working on holistic health, um, working with them socially, relationally, with their addictions, the different things of that matter. And so um, he's a phenomenal community organizer as well. And so I'm grateful to have uh, Dr. Edmonds on the panel. I'm also grateful to have Dr. Herma Percy, who is the new ADRA International Advocacy Director. Uh, Dr. Percy has um, extensive experience um, in television, radio. She's worked on C-SPAN. She's been a political commentator on the BBC. Um, she's just truly one of a phenomenal advocate and expert um, in political science. Her doctorate is in political science from Howard. So definitely grateful to have Dr. Percy on the panel as well. We also have my friend, Pastor Todd Stout. Um, he is the senior pastor of Church of the Advent Hope in New York City, and he is an expert in urban ministry. Um, and he's been doing a lot of phenomenal work. He sits on the board of Adventist Social Justice as well as um, works with Adventist Peace Fellowship. And so it's great to have Pastor Stout on the panel as well. And then last but not least, my good friend, Pastor Daniel Shisto. He is actually the pastor for community engagement and church operations at Tacoma Park SDA, um, and he works alongside my good friend John Nixon. Um, they're doing phenomenal work in the community, but I think what's also um, fascinating about uh, Pastor Shisto is that he's also the church engagement officer for Adventist Peace Fellowship. He sits on their executive committee, and his role is to really try to galvanize as many peace churches uh, throughout our division as possible. And so we have a phenomenal panel that is here with us, and when we received the call to have this conversation, you know, the title of this session is uh, Social Justice, Adventism, and Our Prophetic Call. And I think that it's very critical for us to understand that whenever we're talking about social justice in Adventism, we are not talking about a new phenomenon, but something that is rooted in the history of our denomination even prior to our institutionalization. 
So we have a number of historians, including Dr. Benjamin Baker, uh, Dr. Douglas Morgan, uh, Dr. Samuel London, and Kevin Burton, who have done extensive research chronicling the history of the denomination to show you that even prior to becoming a denomination in 1863, that the Millerites were actively engaged in the abolitionist movement. And Kevin Burton has done phenomenal research to show you that Adventists were also engaged with the uh, temperance movement. Um, they were speaking out against, uh, or speaking for voting. Um, and so we have not simply been a church that only engages in charity, but we are a church that has actively been engaged in dealing with and fighting for systemic justice from the inception. And I think that this panel is looking to take that history and that record for assumption. Every single person on this panel assumes that all of that recorded history is true. So we are not going to take the time to give you that detailed history. There are, all of the historians I just named have hours and hours and hours of content online for you to get that kind of detailed history. So you wanna go to blacksdahistory.org. That's organized and compiled by Dr. Benjamin Baker that has hours of content. You wanna also check out Dr. Douglas Morgan's recent book, Change Agents. You wanna check out Dr. Samuel London's book, Seventh-day Adventists and the Civil Rights Movement. And by getting in touch with those resources, then you will get all the primary source data, all of the uh, historical information, the quotes, everything to your heart's content that will show you in detailed fashion every march, every bill. I mean, Ellen White specifically spoke out against uh, the Fugitive Slave Act, okay? So that we have a pioneer, a founder of our church, who is very adamant about saying, not only are we going to engage in social justice, but I command you, I admonish you rather, to disregard the law when the law is uh, uh, oppressing other people, all right? The Morning Star Steamboat, in and of itself, was a social justice initiative that was working for the advocacy uh, and literacy of former slaves, okay? During a period of time when teaching African Americans how to read was illegal. So again, when we're talking about social justice, we are, we are talking about the law, we are talking about systems, and we're not just talking about charity. And we have enough history to prove that that is within our prophetic tradition, and I'm hoping that in our conversation this morning that we'll be able to dive more practically and biblically so that you can actually go back to your communities and do this um, at, at the local level, all right? So if you guys could, I would like to now turn to my panelists. If you guys could, what, how would you define, I really want to kind of go down the line, how would you define social justice, Pastor Shisto? Social justice to me is Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. It's Daniel going to the king and saying, you have been found wanting, you are corrupt as all hell, and your kingdom is going to be stripped. Social justice is all of the prophets speaking out for those who are marginalized and oppressed. And social justice is Jesus starting his ministry saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
I have been anointed to preach the good news to the poor and set the oppressed free. So in a nutshell to me, social justice is just living the teachings that we find in the Bible. You know, Claudia, if you had asked me this question seven, eight months ago, I would have gotten really academic on you and start talking about the distribution of wealth and resources and access. But I've really come to love the definition that Adra uses for that. And that is social justice is not just about being fair, right, or upholding the law. But instead, it's an understanding that as a child of God, Every person deserves the opportunity to live as God fully intended. And that as a God of love, he uses people. And through working through people, through actions, whether big or small, and filled with compassion, we can pursue a life in which all people can live as God created them to uniquely be. And I think that's a definition that people of faith can embrace. Had a hidden mic. I I would say that uh, social justice is God's act in Christ Jesus and for the abundance of life that we have found in Christ, right? So notice that I didn't get into the law parts. I made it doctrinal. So there's a doctrinal component Mm -hmm. to the act of what God is about, right? So then we'll keep it there. I have a hidden mic too. You know, I've wrestled with this uh, from the time I saw the email, and I think I've even more so wrestled with what this question is, and I think it's because of external influences. If you asked me five or six years ago, I'd know the answer, and it wouldn't have been um, academic. It would have just been what I'm experiencing on the ground. I think that because of the politicizing of social justice, we have to define it now. And so for me, social justice is simply just a defiance of privilege. That's it. You have one group of people living a better life than other people. And so any kind of social action or social justice is simply saying, that's not right. And so we demand and we are expecting and we're working for a world where everybody is experiencing Um, the equality that we believe is ours through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so for me, it's critical that we separate it from from politics because we're talking about dealing with human need. And I I can't wait to talk about that more as we get in this conversation. I think social justice is best embodied by the idea that God loves the entire world. So every person is loved by God. And uh, if that's the case, then equity and privilege should be for everyone. So as I'm thinking about the definitions that you guys just gave, which are all really fantastic, um, I'm now also thinking about, you know, something that, you know, Dr. Edmonds had just shared with me a little earlier and even kind of remembering some of the statements that our leadership has made over the years. And there seems to kind of be a continual um, caution around 
um, Seventh-day Adventist churches, leaders, members engaging in social justice. Um, and so in spite of that being a kind of current or contemporary reality, many of us are actually inspired to do this work because of our Adventism. And I would like to know what about Adventism inspires you to do social justice? Well, I'll start by saying that the vast majority of Adventism does not inspire me. Like, there's a reason we have this small room right here, right? Like, why aren't we in a bigger room and everyone wants to crowd in here? So the vast majority does not inspire me. The minority in this room, that's the one that inspires me, the people who are in this room. And so it's like, you know, you have to go back, besides a small minority in this room, you have to go back 150 years, the history you were talking about. You know, there's some hopes, and there's there always been these pockets of hope, like in the Civil Rights Movement, Irene Morgan. Why don't we know Irene Morgan's name? You know, I preached a sermon on Irene Morgan. People came up to me, I've never heard that before. Why isn't she in the curriculum in Adventist education? She refused to get up off of the bus before Rosa Parks. I mean, you know, Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court uh, appointee, the, tried her case and probably rose to prominence because of it. So we don't know. Um, another thing, other people who inspire me uh, in Adventism are my wife, first and foremost, my wife. She's black and she speaks truth to power, talking about racial trauma in the Seventh day Adventist church in times where it's not easy to speak up. You know, some of us pastors, I feel like uh, we feel we're persecuted when our mileage reimbursement goes from 45 cents to 35 cents. <laughs> you know, we think we're putting our neck on the line when we ask the conference president, uh, could we not go to camp meeting because of sem summer travel plans? Like, that's the riskiest that we get. But there are people like my wife, like Todd Leonard, uh, like Alicia Johnson, like people who are uh, standing up for the dignity and human value of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, like today's issues, there is a small spearhead who is doing the work and is not afraid. So I look to them right now in Adventism. Another person, how about you? How does Adventism inspire your social justice? I think uh, you covered some of that history. I think if you look at our pioneers, I, I, for me, I'm inspired. Um, a lot of people talk about the fact that our pioneers were advocates for temperance and, and uh, abolition of slavery. But lesser talked about is the fact that they actually worked with other groups, worked in coalitions with people that were supporters with them on one issue, but opponents on another issue. And I'm thinking about Black Lives Movement when I'm saying this to you, because we find that our pioneers, for example, they worked with supporters on temperance and those same supporters in those coalitions that they worked on opposed them. They were their opponents on Sunday laws. So I'm inspired by the fact that we don't have to just limit ourselves to just working in a silo, just working as Adventists. We can partner with others. And I'm gonna throw in even ADRA. 
um, in this example because we find that at the worldwide headquarters, you know, there's a tradition where we just work on that level with other unions and, and divisions. And um, recently, I worked with um, Pastor Daniel here for with Adventist Peace Fellowship in bringing a global town hall to the forefront to talk about refugees and the refugee crisis. Um, you know, we know, for example, that um, because of Ukraine, the issue of refugees is a pressing one, but there are many layers to that crisis because there are concerns about um, discrimination in, 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 in who we open our borders to. And so working with Adventist Peace Fellowship is another example of how we can work with different people to advocate. And we're going to talk more about this, I'm sure, in our conversation. But I was just inspired that our pioneers did that. They didn't just work within the Adventist community, but they looked external to see where they could have access and resources to amplify their voices and to make a difference. I think... Um as a church, we have a language called apocalyptic that helps orient the language we use to employ the sort of descriptions we have about the world, and not only about the world, but about the neighborhood, also about our blocks, our streets, right? So notice I said apocalyptic. I did not say apocalypse. Apocalyptic is an action. It's a rupture. If Christ has resurrected, and it is true that there's a new heavens, per se, that has new creation already started in the ascension of Christ, then there's something that ought to be driven to the newness. In other words, we remain within the old fantasy that we're going outside of this world. Adventist language has a trickle of apocalyptic language to help us see the sort of systems that continue to corrupt the very wants of why we're wanting to get out of the world. Yeah. We were never called to get out of the world. So that apocalyptic has to be reimagined. If Christ is truly alive, something is new. And if we're still doing the old garbage of ministry, then Christ remains dead. So part of that apocalyptic language is what fuels my thinking, it fuels my action, and it fuels the reinterpretation of my body in how I see bodies in certain cities, blocks, neighborhoods, and so forth. And as we can say, well, things aren't all right. I would like to be part of what I think God is already doing. I hope you guys heard what he just said. That, that was on another level. We need to have a whole other conversation I about think what we, you just said. We get like another hour somewhere else. <laughs> right. You know, it's just kind of disheartening and discouraging. Um, and I don't want to sound angry because that could be a whole thing, right? Here's a black guy here. He's angry about it. But the, the fact that we have to justify social justice within the context of Adventism is a problem. Right? Isn't it a problem that we've got to find something in our history, even though what you described and what you, um, what you shared with us early on about the history of Adventism before I got here, I was doing a little homework, because honestly, 
I grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist with a strong emphasis on religious liberty. Did anybody grow up with that? With a strong emphasis on religious liberty? We had in our minds, knowing that a time was coming where we would be this minority and that we would be clamoring and praying for uh, government officials and others to respect the Constitution and its rights for our freedom to practice Sabbath. The same freedom to practice Sabbath is the same freedom that someone has to get married in a same-sex relationship. It's the same principle that affords me to worship on Sabbath. We know this, and that has political implications. I think what's discouraging is, is that Christ's life is not enough to justify social action. So I am, I'm, 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 I'm offended when I hear the highest leaders in our church give disclaimer in a recent uh, press conference about social action. They don't even want to say, they don't even want to say social justice. They'll say social action. And then there's always a caveat. And I'll say this, it's not just white people who say this. I've been pastoring in a regional conference from the time I started. I even hear black pastors give caveats about social action. And I will tell you this, the only way that you can caveat social action is if you're not, I'm going to give a line from the movie Boys in the Hood, either you don't know or you, you don't show what's going on in the hood. I don't have the luxury pastoring in Cleveland, Ohio, where the majority of people, one out of every two black men has a felony. I don't have the luxury to decide whether I'm going to be involved in social engagement or social justice. I don't have that luxury. I think the issue is, is white privilege and white supremacy dominates Adventist theology and Adventist practice to where we have to have a conversation as to whether this is prophetic. I don't even like the idea that prophetic is even placed on this. That's our way of saying that we've got to show that this is connected with Adventist theology so that it's okay for us to be involved and, you know, removing, you know, walls of equity and stuff like that, it just bothers me. I'm sorry, I just had to get it off my chest. <laughs> I want to mic drop for Myron and, and leave, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, with all that said, I am inspired by the construct of Adventist theology, our Arminian theology that says there are not a special group of people that are set aside and loved by God and everybody else is lost and... Uh, you know, forget about them. You know, this Wesleyan Arminian theology tells us everybody, everybody is part of the family of God, and we're supposed to be about equity and inequality for everyone. That's God's mission to the to the world, and so this is inspiring. And I think a lot of our, our Christian brothers and sisters who hold a monergistic idea that there are special people, that that affects your view of social justice because if some people are just inherently lost why help them why help them and uh, we do not have that tradition we believe every single person is a child of god and that is going to affect our ability to engage with people i would also say the great controversy concept is important too this is an inspiration when it comes to social justice there is evil in the in the universe and evil is what is behind people not having the opportunities. This is not something from God, and we need to be against that. We are in a, a great war. Just want to jump in onto something that Myron said. 
about white supremacy. I feel that if we as a church had one-tenth of the energy around being anti-white supremacy as we are anti-LGBTQ, we would be a force to be reckoned with. And I'm not saying we should be anti-LGBTQ, because what I'm saying is we have this energy to stop a 40-year-old woman living a quiet life with another 40-year-old woman, like that's going to bring the end of the world. We see white supremacy storm the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and we're silent. We see white supremacy woven into the fabric of our church. I pastored in Charlottesville, Virginia. They came to Charlottesville. They killed a woman, injured dozens others. That Sabbath, I was in the pulpit. And um, the Sabbath after, I was in the pulpit and I said, the KKK, I'm not okay with the KKK. People stood up and walked out of the door. The head elder came to my house and said, you can't be talking about stuff like that in our church. If we had the energy around what's really tearing our country apart, it would be white supremacy but we're on the wrong side of history on that, and we're on the wrong side of history of supporting LGBTQ uh, just value and worth and dignity. So I'll just say that. This is so good. So I, I want to come back to you, Dr. Edmonds. So if we have this history, and this is true, then what is it about the church? Why is it that the church is set up in this culture that Pastor Shiso has just said and, and you have explained that has us acculturated to not engage in social justice, to almost feel as though, like you were saying before, that Jesus' example is, is not enough. And if anything, that Jesus' example is actually not demonstrating anything social justice related at all. We almost see Jesus as completely disengaged. So what is it about um, our understanding of Christ, our understanding of our, our uh, obligation to neighbor that has us this disattached? detached with the community? Uh, you know, Ty Gibson would be a great person to answer this question. He does a great job of explaining how Adventism has shifted in its movement uh, predilection, right, to more of a denominational defense kind of mindset, where really, in a real sense, what, we, what we've gotten to now is that if it's not Adventist, then it's not legitimate. And the definition of what Adventism is frankly, is dripping in white supremacy. I'm going to give you a prime example of that. It took me a while, but I did my first evangelistic series in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I was pastoring three churches there. Um, I'd never run an evangelistic meeting before. Even though I was a pastor's kid, I saw it happen. I never did it, right? So they gave me a set of PowerPoints and lessons. I'll leave it nameless, right? A lot of us had these. And so as I'm preaching on Revelation 13... One of the theological points was, and, and, and maybe this is just old school, but I'm sure some people can track with me on this. The theology was essentially that in Revelation 13, he talks about how this uninhabited territory, talking about America. And so it hit me one day, I just asked a question. I'm like, were there no people in America? Come on. Did, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Our theology was, you know, it was manifest destiny theology. Like, there was nobody in America. So think about that. 
dripping, absolutely it was genocide, dripping in our prophetic preaching, we would spell out this white supremacy. That's one example. Just think about a church that's led by people of privilege for the most part when the majority of this church do not reflect that ideology, do not reflect that sociology, they don't reflect that theology. And so I, I, I don't know the answer to the question, but the, my only guess is that somewhere when we got denominational and we started moving further and further away from our original roots, we became, we be, we became a haven for white, middle-class, successful people and that's how the theology trickled down. Look at our Sabbath school lessons. I remember a Sabbath school quarterly. On the quarterly, there was a picture of a white Jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair. Recently, recently, they had a picture of heaven with people and the majority of people getting ready to be ascended and taken up into heaven. The majority of them in the picture were white. There's a reason why that's happened. And I think it's mainly because of leadership. Who is reflected in leadership and how woke they are to the history that you described. It seems like we have totally disconnected ourselves from original Adventism in some respects. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Barrientos, I want to come to you because I know you want to respond to that, but I want to tack on to the, what you're going to say. Um, can you also maybe speak to the theology, the scripture? Where in the Bible or how can a person, a pastor, approach scripture through a, theo a, a social justice lens um, that is, you know, pro-social engagement. Yeah, so one of my colleagues, Olive Hemmings, if you would know, um, of course, we work closely together, and one thing that she'd always emphasize, there's no such thing as social justice. You only have the mishpat, right? Justice as a whole, right? And the idea of the mishpat was to really lavish out the life of Israel into the life where righteousness has been drenched throughout Israel, but also to the one who is a foreigner, Right? In the New Testament, this mishpat, this righteousness, has not been trickled down to one nation or one people, geographically, ethnicity. It was to one that we, you and I worship. It's Christ, right? The one, the true one. And by the way, there is no one remnant. The one who remained was Christ. And it's to say that part of the theological composition when it comes to justice is that Christ is no longer part of that conversation because we think that prophecy has to do with numerical adumbration. We think that prophecy has to do with outlining who is the right person, who is the wrong person, identifying the little horn, which is interesting because rather than identifying those who are poor in your neighborhood, we spend our lifetime seeking out who is the devil, right? And it's kind of like the strangest thing. So I'm gonna tag on and get back to this. In the 1880s, when we started to grow, what is the one thing that we started to do? We did hospitals, and we did educational schools. Once we started to do that, we started to be institutional. That would set up the church for a lot of headaches in the next decades. You all know that, right? Into the 20s, the church became right, whatever that meant. In the 50s into the 60s, we went into evangelism mode. We started to do evangelism tours. Up to this day, there are voices who are evangelists who have been training the global church on how to think on how to be an Adventist. 
And that is why it's so seemingly thin, but also emboldened just the past couple of weeks when someone has described to us what a Seventh-day Adventist is. I would like to know who that Seventh-day Adventist is. And part of that is to say that we think that theology is uniform. And I'm kind of saying, where in the world is Christ in all of this? The reality, when we go back to a true text, John chapter 1, verse 14, the logos, egenito, sarcos, became flesh. There was a statement that was said a couple weeks ago. We cannot know who Jesus is without scripture. Oh, really? That's the problem. We think we are people of the book. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been redeemed by Christ. That doesn't mean scripture is taken away. It's the fact that you even heard it in some of the conversation yesterday. Oh, I think God loves these people, but the Bible tells me I can't, right? I believe God is all love, but the Bible tells me, you know, it's kind of like that doesn't make sense. The reality is that God has become flesh. And if there is some justice that you want to talk about, go and see what God in flesh looks like. It'll contradict everything we think about what you can and cannot do. So, in a nutshell, Claudia, sorry. Oh, I, mean, are you I, just, doing I, I just, part of this is the issue is poor Bible study would say, let's look up the word justice in the Old Testament and let's look it up in the New Testament. And however you define it, that's what justice is. No, 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 no. Justice has its best embodiment in the very one who gave it. And it is Christ who always goes to those who don't have justice. God has chosen a side. That side is with the poor. Well, what if I'm rich? Does he not? That was never the point. God has chosen a side. Doesn't mean he don't love you because you got money. That's not the issue. The issue is God has identified himself with the least of these. And that just is contra our platonic thinking that God deserves to be high up in the mountain with the other gods. Except this one has the audacity to think that we, the least of these, have the capacity to be in companionship with this God. That's, that's what changes the ballgame, you see. Anyway, sorry. No, no, that's oh. good. And, I mean, we're talking about a God that came low. Oh, oh. Chose to, chose to come God, low. God, chose to. God is low. God is low. God is low. I mean, when we really want to talk about Christ in the flesh, we are talking about a Nazarite Jew who grew up in the hood. Yes. Who, right? Huh? Who was a refugee to Egypt, northern Africa, right? So we're talking about a God who is familiar with vulnerability, was lynched, is familiar with being marginalized, is familiar with being a, a, a person of a low station, right? So if we think about this, what then does it mean to practically be the flesh of Christ? Dr. Percy, some people want to say that if we do charitable goods, 
if we feed the poor, clothe the naked, that that is a sufficient biblical engagement with social justice. Yes, yes. What is the difference, the significant difference, between meeting people's temporal needs mm -hmm. and then kind of engaging in the systemic transformation of people's lives? Yes. So you do hear talk within the denomination that this talk of justice is secular, right? that we're bringing secularism in the church because we have community service and the community service approach of feeding and clothing and providing shelter and even some churches go as far as providing job training skills and workplace skills and, and so we meet our biblical responsibility. But when you look at the life of Jesus as our example, Jesus did more than perform miracles. He did more than just um, heal the sick and, and feed the multitude. Yet far too many limit his service to just those acts. And while it is without question that we should serve humanity in that area, don't get me wrong, Jesus did not stop there. Matter of fact, Ellen G. White in The Desire of Ages, she said that when Jesus was on earth, he manifested an interest in the secular affairs of those whom he served. He manifested an interest, I'm repeating that, in the secular affairs of those whom he served. Jesus was not just concerned about healing their pain, he was concerned about the causes of their pain. Jesus was not just concerned about the symptoms of their pain. He was concerned about alleviating the suffering, yes. the causes of the suffering. Yet, when we focus only on his acts of compassion, too many get comfortable in their Christian responsibility. And they limit their help to the least of these from a place, a place of comfort from their couch, just write a check or make a donation of old clothing and they feel like that satisfies their responsibility. But what I'm talking about here is, yes, in addition to donating your used clothes to, to clothe the homeless, you need to speak up for why they're homeless. Yes, yes, yes. In addition to feeding the poor, you need to speak up about the causes in which they are poor. In addition to praying for the sick, you need to speak up about health disparities that no matter what country you're looking at, it affects minorities more than any other group. Um, but just, just to wrap up here, you know, and I, I have to go back to Adra because a lot of people have not yet realized that the humanitarian arm of your church, which is now in about 120 countries, came to the realization that community service and emergency response that Adra does well. Correct. Whether or not you are a part of the Adventist denomination or not, Adra is, has just amazing reputation that we all should be proud of. But eight months ago, Adra said to me, we want to do more 
because they are re realizing what we're talking about, the life of Jesus, of, of what it demonstrates, that you have to go beyond the community service approach. And ADRA, as well as some other faith-based um, NGOs have realized that when you go into these countries, and by the way, ADRA is known for its response to disasters, but long after disaster, your world church is there, building those communities in many ways that people don't even realize. Your church works on climate change. Yes. Yes. Your church works for justice. And so Adra now has a motto. We've changed our motto. The motto is now justice, wow. compassion, love. Yeah. And so eight months ago, they created a new department called advocacy, which I'm heading and I'm fighting for justice, compassion, and love in 122 uh, 20 countries, including this one. Because what we have realized is that until we address the social and political forces that create a need, all the community, community service projects that you put in place will not be substantial or sustainable. And that's what we have to think about as a church while we have to move beyond just the community service approach. Yeah. Your world church, ATRA at least, is doing just that. Yeah. Uh, Pastor John, you wanna go and then I'm gonna come to you, Pastor Todd. Yeah, just really quick, I would say that it's not um, even, um, it's not even something to be debated. Micah 6, 8 says that the Lord requires mm -hmm. you to do justice. Mm -hmm. So if we're Adventists, the debate is over. We are required to do justice and love mercy. So I see those two work separately. There is work of justice and there's work of mercy. So we're feeding, we're clothing, we're visiting, and then we're also advocating and setting the oppressed free. And you can't choose either or. We're required to do justice and mercy. Yes. So... As we were uh, prepping for this, my mom and I, we were walking, and a gentleman came up to me and asked, you know, if I was doing uh, the social justice panel. And he then, uh, in a very uh, antagonistic tone, asked if this was CIT. If we were going to be talking about the, critical the race theory. And so I want to come to Pastor Stout because Pastor Stout does phenomenal work. But, and I know, you know, Pastor Stout's my, my resident white guy. He, he and I make this joke all the time, so it's fine. I can do it. You guys can't. But because you pastor a diverse congregation, so you're doing this work in a multiracial congregation, how do you get white people to feel as though this is also their spiritual responsibility? Do you get any pushback? How do you practically galvanize your congregation to do this work? Yeah, I think uh, it comes from stories. When, when people start to share their stories, people who have experienced oppression, then it's on everybody's radar. It's very hard to disagree with someone's testimony or story about a situation. How are you going to deny that, that that happened? And so stories, storytelling, hearing, I mean, I didn't know, I'm just honest, I had no idea about driving while black. How would I? 
uh, when I drive, I drive by white. Yeah. So. And, <laughs> All right, we're it's, done. It's, it's much easier, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's much easier. Um, and so until my black friend talks about, tells me a story, and then I hear more stories, and then I'm like, oh, I can't deny that. So I think we started with just really being intentional about telling and hearing stories, and it's changed. I mean, my congregation has always been fairly open to social justice. I do not get a lot of pushback generally, so we're, we're moving forward. Um, but I, the stories still help. I mean, we had a panel hosted, I mean, this is funny to say, a panel hosted, organized by some black members on being black in America, and it was just black people on the stage talking about uh, telling their stories, and it was profound. I mean, you just sit and listen, and um, so I, I think the storytelling is, is absolutely essential, and it really, really makes a difference. I did also want to talk about, I have our head elder, who's a black man. He is the uh, chief executive in the Bronx DA's office. Okay, so that is the highest attorney in the office outside of the DA herself, okay? And so godly man, good guy. And he is practically making a difference. So this is about like, you know, you hear the stories, obviously he knows the stories firsthand because as a black man, he knows, and then having a black family, he knows what's going on. But he's now been put in a position of high power in New York City, and he took on the task of prison reform. Now, as a, as a <laughs> in the DA's office, which already is controversial because you were trying people, but he's leaned into like, how are we going to reform this system? We need, we need to, 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 to have the DA's office. You can't dis disband that, but, but how are we going to reform this so it does things in a godly way? And so he, he will testify, I don't want to speak on his behalf, but that the conversations that are happening in our community about social justice also shape what he does when he goes into the work. He was the first attorney uh, in history, or recent history at least, from the, the DA's office to actually visit the Attica prison. Now, imagine that. You've got, you've got attorneys who are putting people in jail for decades, and they've never been to the jails in or the prisons in which they're putting people. Um, so stories lead to action, lead to compassion. That's how we've addressed things, one of the ways. Thank you. I'm slowly dying. Myron, if you want to. Take that while I slowly die. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wanted to, um, the pastors here can relate to this. There is a, there is a metric of success for pastors in Adventism that is based on the shift that, uh, I can't remember who brought it up, but somewhere in the 60s or 50s, whenever we became a denomination, Creating converts became the, it, it became the standard for success in our local churches, which is to say our evangelism uh, became largely based upon uh, evangelistic meetings. I actually feel like the majority of Adventist theology is impacted not by scholarship, but by evangelists. 
how people think about our theology is not controlled by Andrews, where you have the real biblical experts. The theology is dictated based upon evangelism, or what we call evangelism, all right? Uh, pardon me? Independent ministries doing this convert creating. So I'm going to say something that would not be popular with conference presidents. Conference presidents evaluate and administrators evaluate pastors' effectiveness not based on social reform. It is based on baptisms. Here comes the rub. We only have a limited amount of time and energy and focus to focus on what we think is going to be healthy for our congregations. There are many young pastors that I talk to on a regular basis who feel that they are in competition with doing the ministry of Jesus and producing numbers. So that the only reason, and so this was a shift for me, the only reason why we do social justice is based on a faulty motive. We are doing temporary acts of social justice, which leans towards charity, because I got to run a meeting and I need to baptize a hundred or more souls so I'm seen as, as impressive or successful. I got to get butts in the pew. I don't care if you've changed the educational system in Cleveland. I don't care if you have changed police brutality issues in Cleveland. This is what we're hearing from our leadership and our comp. We, we could, oh, that's nice. We'll post that in the visitor or whatever magazine you have. But at the end of the day, what I'm evaluating you on is how many people you're baptizing. And what we don't realize is even the mindset of conversion, the convert version of evangelism was not Christ's method. Ellen White says Christ's method alone would give true success in reaching the people. And most of what she said was that Christ mingled and ministered, transformed, changed lives. But there is pressure, and I know the pastors here will understand this. There is pressure on us not to do the work that we're talking about in preference of having quote-unquote successful churches. That's why evangelists are, are revered in our church and people like Doc right here are not revered. Her work is appreciated. It looks good. It'll be politically uh, uh, correct for us to have her. But we're not going to celebrate what she's doing as advancing the mission because there are no baptisms involved. We need to address that. Yeah. So let's stick with that. Oh, go ahead, Tom. Well, I, I would say baptism, but also we've got to consider money. Uh, the, the money makes a huge difference. I mean, it, you could baptize zero people, but if your tithe is increasing, oh. I mean, <clears throat> so we're talking about overt <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> it's true. So I, I, I want to come to, to, to Pastor Barrientos because you know, one of the questions that we discussed, you know, you answering is kind of to what Myron just brought up, just this reality that we have a lot of pastors in this room, and I kind of sit in this weird limbo. I am a lay preacher, so I get the voice of the laity, but then I also kind of get audience with you guys as pastors. The laity say to me, well, Claudia, we want to do social justice in our congregations, but the pastors don't actually want to do social justice. Maybe, potentially, for the exact reasons that Doc Edmonds just explained. 
So then I come to you guys and say, well, if you guys want to do social justice, how do you deal with the pushback that you might receive from your leadership for some of the reasons that Myron just explained? What are the practical ways that these pastors, when they leave out of this room, can actively engage and do the work in spite of having these kinds of tithe and baptismal expectations on their shoulders? Oh man, so it lands on me, quite simple. All right, the truth is, it's something that will keep you up at night. In other words, you can't pay to be social justice geared. Something that no paycheck will make up for because you will be persecuted for it. Um, the reality, I think, for any of you workers who really have a real conviction that your neighborhood, right? And here, I'm assuming that you're in a neighborhood and not a farm. Maybe you are on a farm. I would have no idea what a farm church would look like. <laughs> However, in a neighborhood, if there's a real need, then this is part of your engagement. You are the symbol. You are the bridge between the local church and the conference. Mm -hmm. And you have to accept that, number one. Now, regardless of what people tell you, the pastor, let me tell you, me, if you haven't received it, I love you as a pastor. Thank you for being a minister. What happens, a lot of pastors are not getting into ministry because of this, and a lot of pastors, because they can't make, the, make it work, they are leaving ministry. So they'll go to where ministry is happening elsewhere, right? My concern is that there's no sustainability for someone who has true passion for this sort of thing. So what are the practical things? One, if it's part of your already outside of your paycheck thing, get engaged in your community right, whether it's a center, whether it's a school, ask the simple question, what can I do to contribute to your school, to this center, to uh, this organization, to a business? By the way, by the way, listen up. Just because it's a business, it doesn't mean it's evil. You can contribute to the betterment of that business, whatever that may be. Hey, we'd like to fix your store. We'd like to make sure that we could promote what you do. Maybe we could work with you to get your product out for the betterment of the community. You get what I'm saying? Number one, very practical. Number two, on another hint, is that one, you gotta preach about it, all right? Now, you might be like, well, what if that one member, you know, that one elder that holds up the entire tithe of the church, he's gonna get angry, he won't speak up, he'll just walk out, right? This is kind of the example. Preach the gospel. Preach it because you're going to be judged by the gospel too. So be honest with that because one day you will give account to the Lord. And when you give account to the Lord, it better be to the account of the Lord and not that person that walked out because you were talking about the creator and redeemer, right? That's one very practical thing. Another thing, very basic thing is you need to help that congregation if it's not already engaged in its typical you know, acts of kindness or being able to be attributable or bridging the gaps in your neighborhood. See what sort of opportunities there are for people who have similar interests. Find out, meet up with them, talk to them of what they specialize in, and you'd be surprised. Some of the people in your congregation are doing far more than what you will ever do, right? Hence, you got members like yourself in the church. 
I'm at Sligo. Believe me, I got judges, lawyers, who are doing all this on a weekly basis. These are the people I preach to. They have more capacity than I do. But what I do is making sure that you work well with power. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you a truth. You and I are never, never schooled in power. We are illiterate about power in the local church. And let me tell you one thing. You have power. You can never get rid of it. You have power. The problem is we don't know how to work with it. All right? And when you empower people to do gospel work, you will empower them to do great things among you. And the last one, I think the practical thing will be, see what works with individuals in your family. Here's one big problem that I see about, uh, I would say, seasonal justice people. Hashtaggers here, you know, without the camera, they're not talking about social justice, right? Um, if I'm not on the panel, I'm not talking about social justice. These are lazy folk, right? They are a gimmick. We have too many of those too, all right? And one of the things that happens is, if you are a pastor, then do your pastoral work too. Call your membership. Visit your membership. You got poor people in your membership. You got people who can't eat in your membership. It's just, it's just the truth. I'll be honest with you. You know how many phone calls I get at Sligo? Because we have a big church, 3,000 membership. Oh, y'all got money. Well, let me call you up real quick right? But the reality is there are hurt people in your congregation. So when they see you being all over media, right, and never giving them a phone call, you're a fake. You're a fake. Call your membership, visit your elders, gain the people's trust, love the people, and believe me, and this is the problem with our generation, we don't love people enough to be patient with their arrogance sometimes, to move them. Because we're scared that, oh, well, oh, I'm having a hard time in ministry, and after two years, you're gone. It's going to happen. Hold on. They're going to come after you. They're going to stomp you. But you got to love them. And if they see that you love them, they will trust you. And you can move them then to the things that truly matter. All right? I'm being pastoral here because we're going to get into that question later on. I'll give you a story of how, how this all kind of boils down to, to a problem. Anyway, so I, I, I hope that helped, Claudia, oh, a little bit. Uh, all right. Can I say something really quickly? There's this big assumption that, oh, I got a big church. Oh, oh so it's easy for you. A lot of my ministry before I got to this thing, it's all in the South. All in the South. And there's stories about how many people were run away from you just because you include other people who are poor. They will come after you because you don't favor them, right? It, this is an interesting thing that becomes a big problem in so many ways for us as, as ministers as a whole. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to be real quick. I just wanted to piggyback off something you said about power, that we don't know how to use our power. Can I just touch on that for a second? Because we don't. We, we've never been schooled in power is what you said. 
How many of you ever showed up at a city council meeting? How many of you ever showed up at a county council meeting? More of us need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I go to a city council meeting and I'll hear um, city council women or men say, oh, that's Tom right there. He's always at the city council meeting. And when you, you hear what Tom says, Tom is protecting his community. Yep. So we can't be so focused on Sabbath afternoons to go into certain communities to distribute food, but we don't care what's going on the six days and the rest of the week in that community. You see certain communities, they're dilapidated, people, it's a depressed community. Be concerned about that community and show up at a city council meeting and speak up. You know what's interesting, and you can just see that it's the devil, because what's interesting about the Adventist denomination is that we are so uniquely integrated globally that we could do amazing things. When you look at other denominations, they're, they don't have that connection globally. I love being overseas, because when I'm overseas, I can walk into any Adventist church and I just feel at home. I can just ex exhale because I'm a part of a global family. And if you think about it, if we were all on the same page with advocating what we could do globally. So here's an example, we did a test to see, can we mobilize, grassroots mobilize the Adventist community? And we found that we got 1.3 million people within the Adventist community to sign a petition that every child needs an education as a test, as a test, just a test, 1.3 million Adventists worldwide. So that speaks to what you're saying, that we need to know how to use our power because there, we have a lot of opportunities here in the church, and if you even think about the NRA, for example, what, what makes the NRA so powerful? Because they know how to mobilize that grassroots. We have that grassroots here in this church. Oh, Lord, help us. Real quick, I see some people walking out. I have to go get my kid at the Starfish uh, station. So I'll just end real quick with this. What was that word in Micah, Doc? What was that word in Micah 6, 8? Required? Was it required? Yeah, we're required to do justice, right? And so your question was, um, what do parishioners do uh, if their pastor doesn't want to get involved? What do pastors do if their president doesn't get involved? In Matthew 25, we're not going to be able to tell Jesus, my pastor didn't want to. My conference president didn't let me. We are required to do the work, and so it's not an option. We got to do it. So um, in this grassroots movement, um, I was in a farm church in central Virginia, people walking out because I'm talking about KKK. Um, and you know, we did find a way to help. Even in that community, you could help. So we went down to the city council, said, what is the major need in this community? They're like, we have a lot of senior citizens, and they need ramps to get into their house. So <clears throat> Rockbridge County, we designed a program ramping up Rockbridge. And we built ramps for senior citizens to get into their home. And that's a marginalized community too, a senior citizen, disabled community. So in every single community, there are uh, marginalized people that our church could absolutely have an impact on. In Tacoma Park, where I am now, it's a little bit larger and we have a little bit more power. And so we, 
we um, found out about this school, Southlake Elementary School. It's a school of 937 beautiful black and brown children, uh, and their school is absolutely dilapidated. Down the street, um, uh, Poolsville has a state-of-the-art uh, facility. Poolsville, state-of-the-art, 80% um, white. Southlake Elementary, dilapidated, worst uh, school in the county, in Montgomery County, a rich county, falling apart, 93% black and brown, 20 minutes apart. We found this out, we attended school board meetings, we attended county council meetings, we had a press conference, we did a letter writing campaign, it took a year and a half, a year and a half later, six million dollar new building for Southlake Elementary School. The church has power. That's so good. And if there's anything, you know, I work for Howard County government. And so what's been very fascinating since working for them now is there are so many denominations and faith groups that are always at the table. The Hindus are at the table. The Buddhists are at the table. The Muslims are at the table. The Catholics are at the table. The Jews are at the table. And every Christian denomination you can imagine other than Adventists are at the table. And the moment that I got into that room, they got so excited because the first thing they said to me was, Claudia, can you get more Adventists? They want to do things with us. They know we keep Sabbath. So do the Jews, right? They're aware that you can't do anything Friday night to Saturday night. They don't mind that. They're genuinely like, how in the world can we connect with them? How can we partner with them? How can we, we, my office is literally behind the NAD building. Directly behind it. I have had the county executive himself ask me how he can use the building. That means that there are more than likely, because I mean, if we're honest, guys, I mean, we have phenomenal facilities across the division, not just the headquarters. Many of your churches are fantastic. Many of your community centers are fantastic. Myron is building a fantastic uh, building right now. We are good about building buildings. And the reality is a lot of people in our communities need space. We want to come into the community. We want to provide answers. And half the time, they've been doing the work already and just don't have the facilities to do it in. So what if your church became a polling place? Wow. What if? You attended county council meetings and town hall meetings and found out that the need was, was that we needed to put a grocery store in a particular environment and not necessarily a, you know, community center, right? But you have to be present in order to know the need. And so I know that we're at the end here. And, and so I want to just give everyone a chance. 30 seconds, guys. I know all of us are pretty long-winded. Sorry. But 30 seconds, what are your final comments to kind of send people away with? And if you guys have any questions in these last final minutes, I'll certainly give you guys, yeah, I know, he got to get his, he got to go get Max. Um, so final comments. 
I yield my time to uh, Dr. Percy and Dr. Edmund. That's because we, we worked on something that I'm even going to mention. So um, I, I'll quickly say that NAD, and so appropriate since I'm here, NAD and ADRA and the General Conference PARL, we're actually starting a letter writing campaign to Congress about some of the um, policies and practices that discriminate when it comes to refugees. I am personally quite offended when I see Haitian refugees, for example, are turned back consistently when they try to get into this country. They're not the right type, is what Pastor Daniel is saying. But we do find that Haitians, remember under that bridge in Del Rio, Texas? My heart tugged. Thousands were sent back. But our borders are open to others. I remember in the 1990s, Haitians came over on a rickety boat in Miami and they were sent back. Cubans came over in Miami and they were welcome. I don't need to even go into Ukraine. We find that um, I do want us to help Ukraine. Don't get me wrong, that is important. But we do find that borders that were shut for people seeking refuge from Syria and Afghanistan are now suddenly open. And so we are starting a letter writing campaign to talk about we want government leaders to um, take a look at policies and practices that are discriminating. And I hope that you will join us in that campaign because we want it mobilized by the Evans community. I see someone from ADRA has the QR code. Yes, and, and you can also um, email ADRA, I'm sorry, advocacy at ADRA.org, advocacy, advocacy at ADRA.org, or see Adam for the QR code. Join us in the campaign. Let our Adventist voices be heard. We're all in here talking about how Adventists need to do more, where here is your first example of, of demonstrating that. This is our first issue, and believe me, it won't be our last. Very simple, get engaged with those who are already doing something. Um, stop trying to find your identity even after centuries, if you like. I'm being exaggerated. And start finding your identity with the people around you. Um, this finding our identity, if we haven't found it, we've gone the wrong way. The people are our identity. And the reason why that's been taken away is because we've stopped looking at God in Christ. God found his identity in the flesh, per se. And he was comfortable with human beings. I hope that you are too. All I would say is that just being a part of this panel has been encouraging. It could be very discouraging pastoring. Uh, especially pastoring in an impoverished area and you feel like the church is not supportive and then you hear you hear leadership say things that you feel are adverse to what you're trying to do so honestly I just want to celebrate Dr. Percy um, this is just amazing that we have someone that just feels like why are we not hearing about this there's some great work going on in our church sitting here with all this panel hearing what they're doing it does make me feel better about our church 
Um, I didn't feel so good when I came in here. I feel a lot better now. And so I'm just glad to be here and to hear uh, that we have some folks that are moving our church in the right direction. So I'm praising for that. Yeah, and I would just say for local churches, you got to work with the willing. You know, you're not going to get everybody on board with anything. So uh, work with those who want to work. You guys, it is 12.15, and so I recognize Pastor Shiso has to get Max, and some of you might also uh, want to transition to, you know, your next appointment. Uh, but if there's anyone who has any questions, um, please feel free. Okay, Mom? <laughs> 